Amen. Take a Bible, find Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I hope you're reading through the New Testament with us this year. We've provided you with a plan. We're reading five chapters a week. We're giving you the weekends off, days for catch-up. If you read five chapters of the New Testament every week, you'll make it through the entire New Testament over the course of a year. On Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, we're preaching from whatever window of chapters we're currently on. And this morning, we have just read Luke chapter 2 through 6. And our passage this morning is going to come from Luke chapter 3. We've made it all the way through Matthew. We've made it all the way through Mark. And it is time that we talk about one of the most interesting characters in all of the Bible, a man named John who we typically call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer so that we can distinguish him uh, from another John in the New Testament. So we're talking about John the Baptist this morning. Let me just give you a a big sense, a big picture view of what kind of person John the Baptist was. Shortly after I came to Emmanuel, we had a church event, a community event. And I was excited because in the middle of this event, The news showed up, and they brought their cameras, and they were going to do a live story from our event. And I thought, this is great. There's all these people here. We'll get the great publicity. This is fantastic. And I was so excited they were going to cover this and uh, put us on the local news for everybody to see. What I was not excited about is that while I was off doing something else, they picked someone to be interviewed live on TV. This person's no longer around, so I can tell this story. I looked across the parking lot, and I said, that is not the person that we want to be on the news. That's not the one that we want to represent us to all of the Odessa community. Pick anyone else on the parking lot. But why did you pick that one person? What I'm saying to you is that one person is the equivalent of John the Baptist. He dressed a little bit different. He probably smelled a little bit different. He probably talked a little bit different. He was just a little bit different. And you never knew what he might pop off and say. He would have been the guy. John the Baptist would have been the guy that you would have said, interview anyone in the church. Put any one of us on local television, but don't put John the Baptist on local television That's who we're talking about this morning. So let me say a few things about the Gospel of Luke. Jason Westfall, one of our elders, preached Wednesday night. He did a great job. He noted some of these things. And for those of you who weren't here Wednesday night, I just want to note a few things as we begin a quick walk through the Gospel of Luke. First of all, Luke roots this Gospel in history. This is really important when you think about the story of Jesus. Luke roots it in history. This is not a fairy tale. Luke does not begin this gospel by saying, once upon a time in a faraway land. When you hear that, you know it's not a real story. It's just something sort of being made up. It could be anywhere. It could have happened to anyone, but it's not even a real story. When you open the Gospel of Luke, you don't get a crawl down the screen like you get with Star Wars that says a long time ago in a galaxy far away. And you realize, well, this could have happened anywhere. I don't even know if this is real. This is just a made-up story. Luke, when he begins this Gospel, he roots it. He anchors it to history. He talks about eyewitnesses, people that actually saw these things happen with their own two eyes. 
He talks about real historical people in real historical places. He grounds it in history. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's not a made-up children's story. It is a real historical story. That's true of what we're going to say about John the Baptist, and it's true of what Luke will say about Jesus. Next, at the beginning of this gospel, there's an interplay. Luke tells two stories, two birth stories. There's a birth story of John. We call John the Baptist. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then intertold with that story, twined up, mixed up with that story, is the birth story of Jesus, who was the son of Joseph and Mary, ultimately was the son of of God. And Luke goes back and forth between these two stories. He tells a little bit about John and then a little bit about Jesus and then a little bit about John and a little bit about Jesus. And what he's doing from a literary writing standpoint is he's saying these two guys are tied up together. These two guys from the womb belong together. Not only were they relatives, but their mission in their ministries were connected so that you can't separate them. You can't understand the one without the other. Last, John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi's prophecy about Elijah, which is the very last prophecy in the Old Testament. I've given you the verses. You can track all this down and sort all this out. But the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with the promise that God will send Elijah before the day of the Lord. And people were waiting for Elijah. You remember Elijah rode off to heaven in a great flaming chariot. He didn't die. The Lord just took him straight to heaven and people were waiting for him to come back in that chariot. And Jesus says, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus says, for those with eyes to see it, for those with ears to hear it, John is the fulfillment of the promise to send Elijah. He ministered in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He ate like Elijah. He preached like Elijah. I know that this morning, when we talk about John, we're in the New Testament. I know you have that little page between Malachi and Matthew that says you're leaving the Old Testament, now you're in the New Testament. But in a very real sense, John, I know he shows up in the New In a very real sense, John is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the last one, the one that God had promised to send before the day of the Lord, and his job was to point people to Jesus. So that brings us to the big idea. We're going to look at Luke 3, 1 to 20. The big idea is simple. John the Baptist preached good news to the people. Now, as we read about what he preached, it may not sound like good good news to you, But Luke tells us it was good news. If you look at verse 18 in Luke chapter 3, we read that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. That's Luke's way of saying, look, I've told you some of what John had to say. And he had many other things to say, many other exhortations. But in all the things he said to the people, what John had to say was good news news. Literally, it was gospel. So we're going to think about John, and we're going to think about this good news this morning. Take your copy of the scriptures, and we're going to read our passage. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
The scripture says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, every, uh, make his path straight. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful for freedom and safety. We're grateful for uh, easy access to the scriptures, to your word. We're thankful that the word of God has come to people like us in the Bible. God, we pray this morning for eyes to see, for ears to hear as we think about John and the good news that he proclaimed. Lord, we want to hear it and we want to receive it this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One simple question that we're going to wrestle with this morning is this question. What do we learn from the ministry of John the Baptist? His ministry was marked by the proclamation of good 
news. And as we read Luke 3, 1 to 20, and we think about John proclaiming this good news, what is it that we need to take away and apply to our lives? The first lesson is this. The good news has always been ignored by the powers of this world, and yet the good news has shaped the history of this world. By and large, for the most part, it is historically true that the powers that be have ignored the Word of God. And yet it is also true that God has written a story without end, without fail, down through the ages, even without the help of the powers that be, even in spite of the powers that be, God's Word has given shape to human history. Look at verse 1 and 2 in Luke 3. Look at these names. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. Outside of the connection that those men have to Jesus of Nazareth, what do you know about them? They were very important people in their day and time. Very important. They would have told you so themselves. What do you know about them? My guess is you probably don't know much about them. Maybe you're a Roman history buff and you can pop off with some sort of factual stuff about Tiberius Caesar. Maybe you've been in church and heard a lot of sermons and you can pop off with some stuff about Pontius Pilate. But outside of their connection to Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter from a nobody town... History remembers very little about these men. The Word of God, we read in verse 2, did not come to Caesar or Pilate, did not come to Herod or Philip, did not come to Lysanias, it did not come to Annas or to Caiaphas, it came to John. John the son of Zechariah. John, a nobody, who was the son of a nobody, and not just a nobody, but an old nobody. That's where the Word of God came, to John, the son of Zechariah. Last week I mentioned our uh, spring banquet coming up at the end of March. I told you the spring banquet is the event formerly known as the senior adult banquet. And we have renamed it to give it a more positive and encouraging name. The spring banquet. It's for spring chickens. Spring banquet. And I told you we're not putting a minimum age. We're not putting a maximum age. We're just saying we're going to have a spring banquet You know who you are. You can try to deny it, but you know if this is for you, and we would love for you to come and eat with us and fellowship with us, enjoy some music with us. Let me let you in on a little bitty secret. Zechariah, he was the target demo for the spring banquet. Zechariah. Zechariah, too old to have kids. Zechariah and Elizabeth tried all their lives to have kids. They finally, by a miracle of God, had a son. They named him John. He grew up in the wilderness, presumably because his parents were old when he was born and they did not live long enough to raise him all the way to adulthood. So he lived with a group of people, probably a group of Essenes out in the wilderness. And it is to him 
a nobody born to an aged nobody that the word of God came. Can I tell you that John was not exactly in touch with the finer things in life? He really wasn't with it or lit or whatever you may want to say. He didn't know the latest fashions. He didn't know if his jeans were supposed to be skinny or baggy. He didn't know. He didn't know what color of shoes you're supposed to wear before this date on the calendar and what sort of shoes you're supposed to wear after this date on the calendar. He didn't know the best places to go eat. He just liked to eat bugs, locusts and honey. He had a camel hair garment. He was not with it. He was not in touch with popular culture. People will tell you today that you need to be in touch with popular culture, especially if you want to make a difference in the world. People will say to you, if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to change the world, you've got to have the right degree, the right letters after your name. You've got to have the right zip code at the end of your address. You've got to have the right number of zeros at the end of your bank account. You've got to wear the right things. You cannot wear last year's things. You've got to rub the right shoulders. You've got to know the right people. You've got to be in the right rooms. They will tell you all sorts of things that you need to do if you want to change the world. And it's all rubbish. John didn't care about any of it. But John changed the world. Why? It's because he had the Word of God. You don't need all the things of this world if you want to change this world. You chase after the things of this world, you end up like Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. You are barely a footnote in the story that Almighty God wrote through a wild man wearing camel hair eating locusts in the wilderness through a carpenter from Nazareth who died without a penny to his name. To a group of fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who to our knowledge never caught a fish without Jesus' help. God used those people to write a story. Not the guys you read about in verse 1 and verse 2. Look, Peter talks about this. Peter learned this lesson. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All those names in verse 1. All the people today that seem so important and so influential, they're grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Their glory does not endure. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to make a difference in history, if you want to be part of what God is doing in history, you don't need all of that worldly glory. You need the Word of God. John reminds us of that lesson. You don't have to own an oil company. You don't have to live in Midland or Dallas or L.A., or New York. You don't have to know the right people. You don't have to be able to name drop and talk about your connections. You don't need any of that stuff. You don't need skinny jeans or wide jeans. 
You need the Word of God. What do we learn from the ministry of John the Baptist? Number two, we learn that the good news requires us to identify sin, to call people to repentance, and to offer the forgiveness of sin. Now, when you and I hear good news, we say, okay, this is going to be some uplifting, positive, encouraging, K-love type stuff. This is going to give me the warm fuzzies. But there's more to the good news than the warm fuzzies. In fact, if your Bible is open, let's just take a sampling of what John had to say to people. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Repentance. That's the idea that you change your mind about sin in such a way that your life changes as a result. That's what John is telling people to do. Change the way you think about sin and change your life because of the way that you've changed your mind about sin. He's calling people to repentance. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. Maybe you've noticed that Chris, one of our elders, is doing a missions emphasis every other week. Maybe Chris should try this in two weeks. Instead of saying, good morning church, I'm glad you're here. Maybe he should just look out and say, you're all a bunch of snakes. That's what John said to the people who were coming to be baptized. You're a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Look at verse 8. He called them to repentance. It's a theme in John's preaching, repentance. Verse 11, 12, 13, 14. He did not just say repent generally, but he got specific. And this is where some folks would say, John, you have gone from preaching to meddling. You've gone from talking about nice Bible ideas to really getting in people's business. John, you are really stepping on toes, but he just gets specific and he says, look, you need to repent like this. And they say, well, what about us? And he says, well, you need to repent like this. For you, repentance would look like this. He's specific as he talks about repentance. Look at verse 19 and 20. He sets his sights on a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was living with his brother's wife. And everyone knew it. And Herod just tried to pretend like it was no big deal. And John was at least one of the voices, the only voice that we actually know about, who had the guts to stand up and say, hey, I know that we're all just pretending like the emperor is clothed, but he's not. And that's wrong. And he called Herod out for all the other evil things that he had done. He's identifying sin and he's calling people to repentance. Do I need to tell you that John did not win Mr. Congeniality? In the high school yearbook, when they voted on people, he got zero votes for most likable. Nobody wanted to hang out with this guy because he was identifying sin as sin and he was calling people to repentance. So this week I did some thinking about verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. That's where John really gets specific. And I thought to myself, what would John say to us? Because we don't wear tunics, so he probably would not tell you to give one of your tunics away. Uh, most of you are not tax collectors. 
Most of you are not enlisted in the military, and he gave instructions to tax collectors and to soldiers. So I found myself thinking, what if we could go back in time, snatch up John, bring him to Odessa, Texas for one week, and just turn John loose? And say, John, we just want you to spend a week in Odessa. Have fun. Listen to people. Watch people. Interact with people. Drive down 42nd Street. You're going to love it. And then at the end of that week, we said, John. John the Baptist. John the son of Zechariah will be preaching at Emmanuel Baptist Church. One Sunday only. And he's going to tell us how to repent. When John told people to repent and he got specific, he hurt feelings. People did not like him. And I don't know exactly what John might say to us, but I imagine it would involve some hurt feelings. So let me just give you some sanctified imagination. What would John say after a week in Odessa? Maybe John would say, there's a lot of lazy employees as I go around, people that don't work very hard. And maybe John would say, there's some greedy employers who ought not try to just get by with giving their people the bare minimum. And maybe he would call both sides to repentance. John spends a week in Odessa, maybe he would say, You people spend a lot of time looking at that flat, black, shiny thing in your hand. And maybe you ought to spend more time looking at the real-life people who are sitting across from you or sitting with you or in your home. I think John, if he had conversations with us and tried to figure out exactly what we believed, I think he might say, you know what? You spend Sunday mornings in the right place with the right people. But the way you think about life is no different than Disney or Oprah. You've just bought into the dominant worldview. And you sort of sanctify it and put a nice spiritual bow on it by coming to church on Sunday morning. But the way you think, the way you view the world is no different than anyone else who's sleeping in on a Sunday morning. I think John might say, you all use a lot of substances that cloud your mind and impair your judgment, and you probably ought to knock it off. I wonder what John would say to church members. I think he'd have something to say. In the Bible Belt, it would probably, maybe, possibly be along the lines of quit treating church like a performance or a a one-hour entertainment or evaluating it based on how it made you feel or how funny it was or wasn't. I really wonder what he'd say to pastors. Because I know he'd have a lot to say to pastors. I think he would look at pastors and I think he would say, why don't you quit worrying so much about what everyone thinks about you? Why don't you quit worrying about how big your building is or how big your budget is or how many people are in the room and why don't you just focus on the Word of God? I wonder if John would say to us, y'all are too chatty. You do too much talking about people that you ought not be talking about. 
Some of you need to close your mouth and some of you need to plug your ears up and quit listening to it. Quit patting yourself on the back because you're not the one saying it, but plug your ears so that you're also not the one listening to it. I really wonder what John would think about our obsession with media, things that we watch. And I have a really strong suspicion that John would say, you go here on Sunday and then you gorge yourself on shows, movies, series, whatever that have no redeeming value whatsoever. It's just filth. Look, I don't know what he would say, but I bet you it would hurt your feelings. And I bet you after a week he'd have some specific things to say, you need to repent and here's how. He's calling people to repentance. He is identifying sin as sin. Let me tell you something. We need people who are courageous like John to do that today. We need people who will not just flow along with the stream, agreeing with the world about everything, and people who will actually stand up and say, you know what, the Bible says that that is wrong. It's sinful. And that you need to repent. Can I tell you that it's going to take guts for you to do that in the year 2022? It's not an easy thing to do. It wasn't easy in the first century and it's not easy in the 21st century. It will take courage and there will be a cost if you do that. If you call sin, sin and you call people to repentance. And we need people who will do that. You notice that's not the only thing that John preached when he preached about the good news. He said, that's sinful. He said, you need to repent. And he promised forgiveness. He didn't talk about sin just to make people feel rotten and dirty and gross and embarrassed. He didn't talk about sin so people would be really good Pharisees and clean themselves up. He talked about sin and he called people to repentance and he promised people that if they would do those things and they would believe in God's word, that God would forgive their sins. There's a balance there that you and I have to strike in the year 2022. Having the courage to call sin, sin when no one else will. Having the guts to say to people, you must repent but not being angry with the world, instead holding out hope that they would turn from their sin and that God might forgive them. John held all of that in balance. What do we learn from John? His preaching and his ministry. Number three, the good news reshapes the way that we think about God. Look, I know all the snake viper stuff is pretty aggressive. But verse 8 and 9 is what really got people hot. John said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's what people were saying to John. John, this is good stuff. I sure hope you unload on the Gentiles. The Gentiles need to hear this, John. Hell, fire, and brimstone. Give it to them. Now us, you know, we got the 
the Ancestry.com, the 23andMe. We did the little test. We are Abraham's offspring. So we don't really need to hear this. But the Gentiles, they really need to hear what you're saying, and I'm glad you're saying it. John said, don't even start that with me. Don't say to me, Abraham is our father, so we don't need to repent. He is directly challenging the way that they think about God. And I'll promise you this. I promise you this. This is true from John's life. It's true from Jesus' life. It's true if you talk to any pastor, preacher, Sunday school teacher. If you want to make people mad, call sin, sin, and tell them to repent. Okay? You want to make people mad, say that's sin and you need to repent. But if you really want to get people spun up, challenge what they believe about God. Say to them, you know, a lot of people believe that thing, but it's not what the Bible actually says about God. You think people get mad when you call them snakes and you call sin, sin and tell them to repent? People really get mad when you challenge them with the Scriptures and what they believe to be true about God. And they say, but my grandma told me. John, John, we went to uh, VBS at First Baptist Jerusalem. This is what they told us. We've heard it all our lives. John says, don't even start to tell me that. The way that you think about God is all upside down and wrong. That will make people mad. Example. Find a person who thinks that the most important thing about who God is, is that He is loving. And say to them, you know what, God is a loving God, but the most important thing about who God is, is His holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And begin to tease out the implications of that. A lot of people don't want to hear that. Another example. Find somebody who thinks that God is just raging, angry with the world, ready to just blow his top and destroy the whole thing, and say to them, you know what? The Bible is right that God is angry with sin. He is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. But he's also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he actually wants people to repent that they might be forgiven. Challenge them. People get mad when you challenge what they believe to be true about God. Challenge somebody with the idea that the God of the Bible does not just react to us, but that He is actually sovereign over every molecule, over every event, over every individual, over every part of our salvation. The Bible's clear about that. John is challenging what people believe to be true about God. They did not want to hear it from John. And you know what? People today, when they read the Bible, they don't want to hear it. What most people want to do is take what they believe already and then look to the Bible to find evidence that they're right. So let me give you just a, a quick illustration of this. One of my all-time favorite books is a book titled Why Johnny Can't Preach. It's written by a guy named... T. David Gordon. It's a fascinating little book, really just for preachers, but you might enjoy it. And in the book, he talks about why 
so much preaching is not actually connected to the Scriptures. And one of the things he says is, as Americans, we don't really read the Scriptures to listen to what it says. Rather, we read the Scriptures to find confirmation of what we already believe. This is what he says. I love this quote. We read texts to see how they confirm what we already believe about reality. Texts are mirrors that reflect ourselves. He's saying that for most Americans, when you read your Bible, it's like you're looking in a mirror. All you see is yourself. All you see is what you already believe. You ignore all the rest. Rather, they're not pictures that are appreciated in themselves. This explains in part the phenomenon that many Christians will read their Bibles daily for 50 years and not have one opinion that changes in the entire 50-year span. What an amazing thing that at the age of five you had all of the Bible answers figured out. And you read the Bible your entire life and never changed your mind on anything. Kudos to you. Or maybe... Like many of us, we just read the Bible looking for proof of what we already believe, support for what we already believe, and we ignore the things that challenge what we believe. Listen, these people did not want John to challenge what they already believed to be true about God, but he's challenging it head on. I'm praying for you this year. I have no plans of going back in time and bringing John in for a one-day Bible conference. But we're reading the New Testament together this year. That means five days out of the week, minimum, you're listening to the Word of God. Not from a crazy, smelly, locust-eating guy in camel hair. But in the book. Don't read it just to confirm what you already think is true. But submit your mind and your heart to what it says. The good news reshapes the way we think about God. Last, number four. What do we learn from John? We learn that the good news centers on the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. The people were wondering, could this man, this crazy man, this wild man, could he be the Christ? And John is quick, verse 15, 16, 17, he says, I'm not the Christ. There's a mightier one coming. There's a stronger one coming. I baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'm here to talk about the wrath to come, but he's the one who's going to execute the final judgment. There is a greater one coming. He's pointing people to the coming of the Christ. Look what he says up in verse 4. It's the fulfillment, Luke says, of words from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In ancient times, when a king would travel from one part of his kingdom to a distant part of his kingdom, it was not unusual for that king to send a road crew ahead of him. He didn't want to bounce on the potholes. He didn't want to ride on the muddy road. So he would send the road crew and he would say, hey, make it level. I want a nice, easy ride. They're preparing the way for the king. That's the idea in Isaiah, and that's the idea in Luke 3. John is the road crew. Get the road ready, because the king is coming. And you understand it's a metaphor. He's not actually paving any roads, but he is bulldozing hearts. And he's calling sin, sin, and he's calling people to repentance. 
And he's not trying to build his own brand or his own reputation or puff up his own ego. He's trying to point people to Jesus. John's a fascinating character. There's so many things we could talk about John that are just really, really interesting. But here's the deal. If we did have John here with us this morning and he heard that we were talking about him, he'd be mortified. He'd say, you missed the whole point. I'm not the point. John's not the point. The point is that he was preparing the way for the king. The king came. His name was Jesus from Nazareth. His story is tied up in the gospel of Luke with John. And when the king came, he called people, Mark chapter 1, just a few weeks ago, repent and believe the good news because the kingdom of God has come. He called sin, sin, and he called people to repentance, just like John did. John offered people. He pointed people to forgiveness from God. Jesus came to accomplish it. Not to say, wait, it's coming, but to say, now it's going to be accomplished. He gave himself to be crucified for sinners. He took the punishment that should have fallen on us in Himself on the cross so that you and I might be forgiven. The call from Jesus is just like the call from John. It's not just to say you're a sinner and you should feel lousy about it. It's not to say you're a sinner and you need to try better. It's to say you're a sinner on a road that leads to destruction. Turn around before it's too late. Believe the good news about Jesus and you're Sin can be forgiven. Some of you have trusted in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Some of you wrestle with whether or not He'll still make good on that promise. There was a day where it seemed very real, very fresh, very powerful. But as time goes on and years go by, you begin to question, you begin to wonder, you begin to doubt. Listen, take your stand on the Word of God. He is offering you the forgiveness of sin. He is promising you, believer, the forgiveness of sin. Some of you have never agreed with God about your sin. You've never turned from it. You never changed your mind about sin and turned your life in a new direction. And You've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never believed the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died so that you could be forgiven of your sin. And today, you can do that. You can agree with God about your sin. You can turn your life in a new direction and you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that your sin can be forgiven. Let's pray.